0: Welcome to the Tory Podcast Tales from Near and Far Read to you by Protum Data A Charles History of England by Charles Dickens Read to you by Protam Data Chapter twelve England under Henry II Part the First Second Section this is England in the early 1100s. Henry I is dead, and his daughter Matilda is married to the future Holy Roman Emperor, Henry V. Now, they don't have any children, and um, after a few years, round about 1125, when Henry V dies, she remarries now to somebody called Geoffrey Plantagenet of Anjou. Now, Henry I wanted Matilda to be his true heir. He had no other children. And with Count Geoffrey Plantagenet, Matilda came over to get the throne of England. Now, while she was crowned, what happened was, The Anglo-Normans did not really care much for Matilda and wanted her cousin Stephen of Blois to actually take over the throne. And so he did. Well, in olden times, people weren't really very progressive and didn't want Matilda to be queen. So Stephen Blois came and you know he always knew at the bottom of his heart that there is Henry. The second who's been born to Matilda who's going to claim the throne and Henry knew that too so he and Stephen came to a peace treaty around about 1153 and when Stephen died Henry the second began the Plantagenet rule in England by becoming king now Plantagenet actually is um, a sort of a sprig of broom sort of a plant that uh, they used to have on the um, hats and the braids and the crests, although the Plantagenet crests, basically three vertical golden lines on a red shield that will define England for the next 330 odd years. So when Henry II took the throne, he realised that there was a lot of conflict between church and state. Now, Henry II had a great friend called Thomas Becket, And Henry II thought, well, why not have my best friend also run the Church of England? In that case, all the conflicts can go away and we can live happily ever after. And as life shows, the best laid plans of mice and men, in this case, the best laid plans of Henry II and Thomas A. Beckett went a bit south. So now, let's get back to the book. Growing rivalry between Thomas A. Beckett and King Henry II. All of a sudden, Thomas A. Beckett completely altered the whole manner of his life. He turned off all his brilliant followers. Ate coarse food, drank bitter water, wore next to his skin sackcloth covered with dirt and vermin, for it was then thought very religious to be very dirty, flogged his back to punish himself, lived chiefly in a little cell, washed the feet of thirteen poor people every day, and looked as miserable as he possibly could. If he had to put 1,200 monkeys on horseback instead of 12, and had gone in procession with 8,000 wagons instead of 8, he could not have half astonished the people as much as by this great change. It soon caused him to be more talked about as an Archbishop than he had been as a Chancellor. The King was very angry and was made still more so when the new Archbishop, claiming various estates from the nobles as being rightfully Church property, required the King himself, for the same reason, to give up Rochester Castle, and Rochester City too. Not satisfied with this, he declared that no power but himself should appoint a priest to any Church in the part of England over which he was Archbishop and when a certain gentleman of kent made such an appointment as he claimed to have the right to do thomas a beckett excommunicated him excommunication was next to the interdict i told you about at the close of the last chapter the great weapon of the clergy it consisted in declaring the people who was excommunicated an outcast from the church and from all religious offices, and cursing him all over, from the top of his head to the sole of his foot, whether he was standing up, lying down, sitting, kneeling, walking, running, hopping, jumping, gaping, coughing, sneezing, or whatever else he was doing. This unchristian nonsense would of course have made no sort of difference to the person cursed who could say his prayers at home if he were shut out of church, but whom none but God could judge, but for the fears and superstitions of the people who avoided excommunicated persons and made their lives unhappy. So the king said to the new archbishop, take all this excommunication from this gentleman of Kent. To which the Archbishop replied, I shall do no such thing. The quarrel went on. A priest in Worcestershire committed a most dreadful murder that aroused the horror of the whole nation. The king demanded to have the wretch delivered up, to be tried in the same court and in the same way as any other murderer. The Archbishop refused and kept him in the bishop's prison. The king, holding a solemn assembly in Westminster Hall, demanded that in future all priests found guilty before their bishops of crimes against the law of the land, should be considered priests no longer, and should be delivered over to the law of the land for punishment. The archbishop again refused. The king required to know whether the clergy would obey the ancient customs of the country. Every priest there but one said, after Thomas A. Becket, saving my order. This really meant that they would only obey those customs when they did not interfere with their own claims. And the king went off the hall in great wrath. Some of the clergy began to be afraid now that they were going too far. Although Thomas A. Beckett was otherwise as unmoved as Westminster Hall, they prevailed upon him for the sake of their fears to go to the king at Woodstock and promise to observe the ancient customs of the country without saying anything about this order. The king received the submission favourably and summoned a great council of the clergy to meet at the castle of Clarendon by Salisbury. But when the council met, the archbishop again insisted on the words, saying my order, and he still insisted. The lords entreated him, and priests wept before him and knelt to him, and an adjoining room was thrown open, filled with armed soldiers of the king, to threaten him. At length he gave way, for that time, and the ancient customs, which included what the king had demanded in vain, were stated in writing, and were signed and sealed by the chief of the clergy, and were called the Constitutions of Clarendon. The quarrel went on, for all that. The Archbishop tried to see the King, the King would not see him. The Archbishop tried to escape from England, the sailors on the coast would launch no boat to take him away. Then he again resolved to do his worst in opposition to the King, and began openly to set the ancient customs at defiance. The king summoned Thomas A. Becket before a great council in Northampton where accused him of high treason and made a claim against him, which was not a just one, for an enormous sum of money. Thomas A. Becket was alone against their whole assembly and the very bishops advised him to resign his office and abandon his contest with the king. His great anxiety and agitation stretched him on a sick bed for two days, but he was still undaunted. He went to the adjourned council, carrying a great cross in his right hand and sat down holding it erect before him. The king angrily retired into an inner room. The whole assembly also angrily retired and left him there. But there he sat. The bishops came out again in a body and renounced him as a traitor. He only said, I hear, and sat there still. They retired again into the inner room, and his trial proceeded without him. By and by, the Earl of Leicester, heading the barons, came out to read his sentence. He refused to hear it, denied the power of the coat, and said he would refer his cause to the Pope. As he walked out of the hall with the cross in his hand, some of those present picked up rushes. Rushes were strewn upon the floor in those days by way of carpet, and threw them at him. He proudly turned his head and said that, were he not archbishop, he would chastise those cowards with the sword he had known how to use in bygone days. He then mounted his horse and rode away, cheered and surrounded by the common people to whom he threw open his house that night and gave a supper, supping with them himself. That same night he secretly departed from the town and so, travelling by night and hiding by day and calling himself Brother Dear got away not without difficulty, to Flanders. The struggle still went on. The angry king took possession of the revenues of the archbishopric and banished all the relations and servants of Thomas A. Becket to the number of 400. The Pope and the French king both protected him and an abbey was assigned for his residence. Stimulated by the support, Thomas A. Becket, on a great festival day, formally proceeded to a great church crowded with people and, going up into the pulpit, publicly cursed and excommunicated all who had supported the constitutions of Clarenton, mentioning many English noblemen by name, but not distantly hinting at the King of England himself. When intelligence of this new front was carried to the king in his chamber, his passion was so furious that he tore his clothes and rolled like a madman on his bed of straw and rushes. But he was soon up and doing. He ordered all the ports and coasts of England to be narrowly watched that no letters of interdict might be brought into the kingdom and sent passengers and bribes to even the Pope's palace at Rome. Meanwhile, Thomas O'Becket, for his part, was not idle at Rome, but constantly employed his utmost arts in his own behalf. Thus the contest stood until there was peace between France and England, which had been for some time at war, and until the two children of the two kings were married in celebration of it. Then The French king brought about a meeting between Henry and his old favourite, so long his enemy. Even then, the Thomas A. Becket knelt before the king, he was obstinate and immovable as to those words about his order. King Louis of France was weak enough in his veneration for Thomas A. Becket and such men, and this was a little too much for him. He said that a becket wanted to be greeted in the saints and pitted than saint Peter and rode away from him with the King of England. His poor French Majesty asked a becket's pardon for so-doing, however soon afterwards, and cut a very pitiful figure. At last, and after a world of trouble, it came to this. There was another meeting on French ground between King Henry and Thomas A. Becket. and It was agreed that Thomas A. Becket would be Archbishop of Canterbury according to the customs of former archbishops and that the King should put him in possession of the revenues of that post. And now, indeed, you might suppose the struggle at an end and Thomas A. Becket at rest? No, not even yet. For Thomas A. Becket, hearing, by some means that King Henry, when he was in dread of his kingdom being placed under an interdict, had had his eldest son, Prince Henry, secretly crowned, not only persuaded the Pope to suspend the Archbishop of York, who had performed that ceremony, but to excommunicate the bishops who had assisted at it but sent a messenger of his own into England in spite of all the king's precautions along the coast who delivered the letters of excommunication into the bishop's own hands. Thomas A. Beckett then came over to England himself after an absence of seven years. He was privately warned that it was dangerous to come and that an hourful knight named Ranulf de Broc had threatened that he should not live to eat a loaf of bread in England, but he came. The common people received him well and marched about him in a soldierly way, armed with such rustic weapons as they could get. He tried to see the young prince who had once been his pupil, but was prevented. He hoped for some little support among nobles and priests, but found none. He made the most of the peasants who attended him and feasted them and went from Canterbury to Harrow-on-the-Hill and from Harrow-on-the-Hill back to Canterbury and on Christmas Day preached in the cathedral there and told the people in his sermon that he had come to die among them and that it was likely that he would be murdered. He had no fear, however, or if he had any, he had much more obstinacy, for he then and there excommunicated three of his enemies, of whom Ranulf de brock the irful Knight, was one. As men in general had no fancy for being cursed in their sitting and walking and gaping and sneezing and all the rest of it, it was very natural in the person so freely excommunicated to complain to the king. It was equally natural in the King who had hoped that this troublesome opponent was at last quieted to fall into a mighty rage when he heard of these near fronts and on the Archbishop of York telling him that he could never hope for rest while Thomas A. Becket lived to cry out hastily before his court. Have I no one here who will deliver me from this man? There were four knights present, who, hearing the king's words, looked at one another and went out. The names of these knights were Reginald Fitzuse, William Tracy, Hugh de Morville, and Richard Brito three of whom had been in the train of Thomas A. Becket in the old days of his splendour. They rode away on horseback in a very secret manner and on the third day after Christmas Day arrived at Saltwood House, not far from Canterbury, which belonged to the family of Ranulf de Brock. They quietly collected some followers there in case they should need any and proceeding to Canterbury, suddenly appeared the four knights and twelve men before the Archbishop in his own house at two o'clock in the afternoon. They neither bowed nor spoke but sat down on the floor in silence staring at the Archbishop. Thomas A Becket said at length, What do you want? We want Said Reginald Fitzgerald, the excommunication taken from the bishops, and you to answer for your offences to the king. Thomas A. Becker defiantly replied that the power of the clergy was above the power of the king, that it was not for such men as they were to threaten him, that if he were threatened by all the swords of England, he would never yield then we will do more than threaten, said the knights. And they went out with the 12 men and put on their armour and drew their shining swords and came back. His servants in the meantime had shut up and barred the great gate at the palace. At first, the knights tried to shatter it with their battle axes, but being shown a window by which they could enter, they let the gate alone and climbed in that way. While they were battering at the door, the attendants of Thomas A. Becket had implored him to take refuge in the cathedral, in which, as a sanctuary or sacred place, they thought the knights would dare to do no violent deed. He told them again and again that he would not stir. Hearing the distant voice of the monks singing the evening service, however, he said it was now his duty to attend, and therefore, and for no other reason, he would go. There was a near way place between his palace and the cathedral, and some beautiful old cloisters, which you may yet see. He went into the cathedral without any hurry, and having the cross carried before him as usual. When he was safely there, his servants would have fastened the door, but he said, no, it was the house of God and not a fortress. As he spoke, the shadow of Reginald Fitzurse appeared in the cathedral doorway, darkening the little light there was outside on the dark winter evening this knight said in a strong voice follow me loyal servants of the king the rattle of the armor of the other knights echoed through the cathedral as they came clashing in it was so dark in the lofty aisles and among the stately pillars of the church And there were so many hiding places in the crypt below and in the narrow passages above that Thomas A. Beckett might even had that pass have saved himself if he would. But he would not. He told the monks resolutely that he would not. And though they all dispersed and left him there with no other follower than Edward Grime, his faithful cross-bearer, He was as firm then as ever he had been in his life. The knights came on through the darkness, making a terrible noise with their armed tread upon the stone pavement of the church. Where is the traitor? they cried out. He made no answer. But when they cried, Where is the Archbishop? he said proudly, I am here and came out of the shade and stood before them. The knights had no desire to kill him, but if they could rid the king and themselves of him by any other means, they told him he must either fly or go with them. He said he would do neither. And he threw William Tracy off with such force when he took off his sleeve that Tracy reeled again. By his reproaches and steadiness, he so incensed them, and exasperated their fierce humour, that Reginald Fitzers, whom he called by an ill name, said, then die, and struck at his head. But the faithful Edward Crime put out his arm, and there received the main force of the blow, and that it only made his master plead. Another voice from among the knights again called to Thomas A. Becket to fly, but with his blood running down his face and his hands clasped and his head bent, he commanded himself to God and stood firm. Then they cruelly killed him close to the altar of St. Bennet, and his body fell upon the pavement which was dirtied with his blood and brains. It is an awful thing to think of the murdered mortal, who had so showered his curses about, lying all disfigured in the church, where a few lambs here and there were but red specks on a pall of darkness. But to think of the guilty knights riding away on horseback, looking over their shoulders at the dim cathedral and remembering what they had left inside. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.